when we hear the word uh, Iran, or even better, the word Islam, there's an immediate reaction. It's almost a common noun rather than a proper noun. It means something strange, something to us evil immediately. We think of the hostages, of course, but more Islam. Now, what do we know of 800 million people of the world? Edward Said, who was professor of uh, literature, English literature, at Columbia University, is perhaps as conversant with the whole idea of the history of Islam in the Middle East as well as anybody. His recent book is called Orientalism, and that word itself has a connotation. But his most recent work, one about to come out, published by Pantheon, is called Covering Islam. And the subtitle attracts me very much. How the media and the experts determine how we see the rest of the world, really, is what it amounts to. And so, uh, the reflections, Edward Said, covering Islam after this message. The very opening of the book, after your prologue, Edward Said, after the prologue, you speak of a certain commercial that was run in New York City during the hostage crisis. Right. Con Ed, the, the utilities, ran a commercial. Yeah, it was a commercial in which they showed pictures of uh, robed men and people who were connected to the world of Islam, some of them known, some of them unknown. And the voiceover said, these men control America's energy supply. And the effect of the commercial was to make it seem as if uh, these men were a tremendous threat to our country. They were not named. Very little about them was described, except that they held some tremendous uh, irrational, perhaps even evil power over the United States. And that, I think, captured uh, something which is very much in the popular mind during the hostage crisis, when it was believed that America was held hostage by Islam, um, and reinforced this tremendously powerful and very prevalent image of Islam, as if Islam were, uh, you know, something easily definable. And that was the point of the commercial, to define it and to fix it and to make it representative to Americans. Whereas, of course, most people are not aware of the fact that Islam covers uh, 800 plus million people in 40 different countries scattered all over three continents. But all of this was as nothing. All that it meant was Islam means oil. And oil means disruption of the West and high oil prices and even terrorism. And the effect of that was, was negative and reinforced fears and made it possible for people to talk about the invasion of the oil fields, which is a very current idea. You know, as you say this, I start thinking American Indians, the films we saw down through the years, sure. the gooks of Absolutely. Southeast Asia, sure. or for that matter, the inscrutable Oriental. Mm -hmm. You're talking now about our view of a different people, mm -hmm. specifically now Islam, because it involves oil yes. and, as a peripheral matter, of the hostage yes. crisis. Yes, and, it's, and it's, it's a way of dealing with what is unknown. And in a curious way, at the same time that you get the impression that you're finding out things about it, in fact, it's further reinforcing what we don't know. And it's this, uh, this image of, uh, or rather this combination of tremendous currency, stuff that you see all over the place, people in robes, you see advertisements, you know, people, sheiks holding oil, uh, you know, pumps in their hands, uh, terrorists with, with, uh, with uh, scarves around their heads and so on and so forth. And this is multiplying everywhere. And the net effect of it is, as I say, to reinforce that image, but it tells you very little about what, in fact, is going on in that part of the world. Yeah, I think... The commercial by utilities, yes. it's, it's as though when you're advertising something, you choose the easiest Absolutely. Uh, stereotype. Right. It's a natural stereotype because yeah. it arouses, there's a reaction immediately. Absolutely. And I'm, this is the easiest of all yeah. stereotypes. I mean, one of the, th the points that I try to make in this book is that there is no other, uh, you know, there is no other group, there is no other in the world today who is as easily treated this way. As the, uh, as the Islamic world. In other words, we, we, we can't do that about the gooks or the Japanese or blacks or Jews or any of the other, you know, earlier kind of scapegoats that we used to, you know, the foreign devils that we had in our culture, Indians and so on and so forth. Those are all now uh, rehabilitated. They have been, they've sort of incorporated in the culture. And the only group that is now open to this kind of uh, caricature is, is our, our Muslims ah, and Arabs along and with them. So now... 
uh, that under the banner Islam yes. at the moment, so, uh, the Arabs, the Middle East, that's the one culture you say that has not been acculturated. No. The others have in a sense. In a sense they have. They, this, this is always, for a lot of sort of historical and, and social and political reasons, I mean historically of course the world of Islam is the closest to the West, to Europe. And back in the, in the early uh, years of the Islamic uh, emergence, say at the end of the 7th and 8th centuries, uh, Islamic armies, you know, went across Europe and they conquered Spain and they threatened France and they held the kingdom of Sicily and so on and so forth. And so there's this lingering memory of the, of the great Islamic armies, which of course were dispersed and dis dismissed, uh, you know, by the middle of the 16th century. Of course, as kids in school, we always read about the Crusades. Yes, exactly. The Crusades Naturally. is one of the great, uh, one of the great yeah. adventures of the West, yeah. you know, going back into the world of Islam. And there's always, uh, and the memories of those days, the Crusades and the, and the Islamic armies and so have lingered and have continued in the, in the sort of cultural memory of, of Europe. And, and unlike, it's interesting, and, and of the West, and unlike places like China and India and Japan, which, you know, we have come to know better or we've conquered, the world of Islam has resisted this uh, in, in, in many ways. And what is interesting about it is that what is lost in all of these depictions of Islam is some sense of the tremendous variety of the world of Islam. I mean, there's a great distinction to be made, for example, between Iranians and Arabs. They're not, you know, they, they, they're part of the world of Islam, but they're quite different societies. And even within the Arab countries, yeah. they're very different groupings. And uh, we forget that there are Muslims in the Soviet Union, there are Muslims in China, all through Africa, and so on and so forth. And but in all of, and in India. And India, and Indonesia, Pakistan, and so on and so forth. But all of that is as if, you know, un, it's sort of unimportant. What matters is that it's connected to our, our United States, strategic and economic interests. Your book covering Islam uh, deals with the incredible variety as well as the debates, fundamental debates going on exactly. within a world of which we know nothing. You used in your previous book, and he, yeah. You, you call it Orientalism. Yes. Now the word Orientalism. Yeah, the word Orientalism to me means uh, a kind of style of thought, you might say, which is based on the principle that there are two parts of the world, as the West or the Occident and then the Orient. And historically, uh, the Orient has, has been thought of as different from Europe. And it contains mysteries. It contains, you know, the mysteries of the East, the marvels of the East, and so on and so forth. All of these uh, wonderful things that we associate with distant countries. But in particular, um, I've traced its history in the last 200 years and in the 19th and 20th centuries in Europe. And insofar as it concerns uh, Islam, which is considered to be part of the Orient, it usually means something that is basically unchanging. Islam is thought of as essentially a debased form of religion because it comes after Judaism and Christianity and it's part of the monotheistic uh, uh, group of religions. It's thought of as a religion that is um, unchanging, monolithic, and fundamentally reactionary. Uh, and there's been a whole trend in the study of Islam in the West, you know, amongst university professors and professionals who are what are known as Orientalists, uh, to regard Islam as a kind of single system which is fundamentally opposed to the West, that it stands for anti-democratic values and, uh, as I said, kind of ideas about sensuality and cruelty and all the rest of it. And what it does, this style of thought, even by people who study the, the religion and, are, and the societies in it, uh, there's, there's always a, an extraordinary hostility towards it. It's sort of interesting. It's one of the rare cases where people try to understand another culture, not from the point of view of sympathy, but of hostility and confrontation. And at, at bottom, what is to be always to be found in Islam is the idea that somehow, no matter where it's to be found, Islam is the same, and it never changes. Uh, and this, of course, does away with the idea of history. I mean, Islamic societies have history. And more important than that, they have people, and people who, like uh, us, feel pain and joy and suffering and and of course there are many different varieties of Islam within Islam and Islamic society and Islamic history and traditions there are as many uh, varieties of Islam and Islamic interpretation as there are of any other great world religion or world religious system but this is all as nothing and you find generally therefore the popular image of Islam as this one thing. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about the variety and the debates that we never heard discussed, particularly by Bani Sadr, who represents a democratic point yes. of view, yes. as against a more conservative point of view of Gustav Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, Iran, is, which is what you're referring to, I mean, during the hostage crisis, the, the media picture that we got um, was, understandably, 
that there were 53 Americans in prison in the embassy, which was a, you know, an outrage and something that offended our national uh, honor. But the result of focusing exclusively on that was also to forget the fact that Iran had just gone through a revolution, that it was still going through a revolution, that within the country there were many currents fighting amongst each other, uh, different points of view exactly on Islam since it was called an Islamic Republic. Everybody who participated in the revolution had a different idea of what an Islamic Republic was all about. And it coincided exactly with the period of our, uh, of our trauma. But we didn't see any of that. And we also forgot that so far as the Iranians were concerned, uh, the United States was not simply a country that had an embassy in Tehran, but had been, as far as they were concerned, the principal outside power that had maintained the Shah's regime, that had put him in there in 1953 as a result of a CIA coup, uh, and that past history to the Iranians was of great importance to them. And the debates in the country concerned what the future of the Islamic Republic was going to be. You know, as you're talking, an image comes to my mind, as it does to millions of Americans. Yeah. All three large television networks were stationed in Tehran during the crisis, okay. 400 some days. Yeah. ABC, NBC, CBS. Uh, CBS, as well as independent, and they had high-priced correspondence. There. Each day we saw the same right. faces, we saw the same image, fists raised, death to Carter or death to Americans right. or uh, the, the Shah. Yes. Not once did we see an Iranian mother crying or yes. weeping. Now, I lost uh, an item I had that appeared in the New York Times on right. page 27 and a half yes. from an, a city near Tehran. You know it. It was a certain Memorial Day. Yes. Uh, the correspondent's name was Pranay Gupte, New right. York Times correspondent. Right. It's a day of uh, commemoration of the dead who were killed under the Shah's regime. There were thousands of gravestones, yes. and apparently there's a picture of the dead person, mostly young in this case, on the gravestone. And there were thousands of people mourning. Yes. There was fruit and there were flowers on the graves. Yes. And there, and Gupte is describing the mothers and fathers and relatives weeping and yes. scratching at the earth. And there's one shot of a mother, and, there's one, and she cries out to the boy whose picture she sees her, saying, yes. why have you left me? Why are you in the dark? Are you cold there? Yes. And it's deeply moving, and the old man is clawing at yes. the earth and uh, others are mourning and crying. And then a young boy passes this older woman, older, she may be 45, mm -hmm. 50, and she says, she grabs, will you be my son for a moment? And the boy starts weeping, and then she comforts the boy. Well, this is multiplied by thousands. Now, it occurs to me, a terribly moving and significant event. I don't recall. I've taken a survey, and not one person watching television, as far as recalls, ever seeing anything like They never saw an Iranian mother cry. They saw no Iranian grief. That's right. That's right. But they saw something. Now, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And, and uh, the, 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 the strange part of it is that this constant focusing on, on the one thing that seemed to offend uh, America uh, shut out the not only what w else was happening in the country, but the whole history of the country. And at one point, you recall, uh, President Carter was asked in the State Department, you know, what about this thing that the Iranians are always talking about as a, as a way of solving the crisis, that America in some way acknowledge the grievances of Iran? And he said, that's ancient history. We don't want to talk about it. Well, I remember the event. Yeah. It was a correspondent. I think it was a woman correspondent. It was a second press conference. Yes. I think she was Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm not sure. Yes. And she said, do you have any second? He says, ancient history, ancient history. 1953. Right, right. So therefore, we're saying there is no history. There is no history, as far as they're concerned. In other words, we care about our history, but not about theirs. And the, the other I thing... I just yes. make a correction? We don't, we don't care, care about, about ours history. either. Go right. Ahead. I mean, but we, we say that we care about ours. In fact, we don't. You're absolutely right. Because our history would involve our history of involvement oh, in, in other parts of the world. Uh, but, but the important thing, you see, was that the more powerful image delivered by the television uh, networks that you, you just referred to was reinforced day after day after day. And they had, you know, three or four hundred correspondents there. And what was interesting is not a single one of those correspondents, for example, knew the language. So they, and in the end, you see, what they saw was what they wanted to see and what they believed their home audience wanted to see. And their purpose, in my opinion, you see, which I try to argue in the book, was not to inform the American public of the complexity of the issues involving the United States and Iran. I mean, it, it doesn't even involve taking sides. It's a question of seeing what 
this crisis was all about, but rather they saw their mission as keeping the country united, you see. In other words, the press played the role of a kind of, not of, not of an independent uh, critic or informer, if you like, of the country, but rather as a kind of patriotic uh, adjunct or kind of annex to government policy. You, you, you point United. out, oh, by the way, not knowing the language, I think Marvin Kalb, again, an expert, yeah. saying he heard there were sounds of Arabic being spoken somewhere, and that did it. Yes, he, for yeah. him, he said, I remember one night, uh, it was, I think, in, in early December of 1979, uh, since one of the things that we were trying to find out, that the media was trying to find out, was who was behind this, this uh, who was behind this taking of the embassy? And of course, there was, there was no way they could find out, stationed as they were outside, didn't know the language. So Marvin Kalb uh, appeared on CBS. He was the top of the news, of the evening news. And he said, informed intelligence sources say that there, is, there have been sounds of Arabic coming from inside the embassy. And therefore, it, we are led to believe that the people behind the actual takeover was the PLO. And the PLO, and then it was developed further, the PLO is directed by Moscow, so this is a communist plot with the Palestinian terrorists and the Islamic uh, fundamentalists, and they are the ones behind this. And this, I found that this story was circulated in the media for a period of about two or three weeks yes, with no basis in... You stick with us. It's sort of comical where it now says sounds of Arabic yes. being spoken. Yes, yes. What does that mean? Sounds well, of it, it means probably that they heard something that seemed to be different from, you know, uh, and many Iranians know Arabic since after all the language of it, the holy language yeah. of Islam is, is Arabic. By the way, who are you? point out, you, you, you mentioned Nolte. Yes. Who are these experts? Oh, well, <laughs> the experts are, are many different kinds of people. Some of them are university people. You know, they work in the various Middle East Studies uh, centers in the universities. Others are people who have business experience in the Middle East. Nolte, the man you referred to, uh, is a former ambassador. He was a member of the Foreign Service who now works in a corporation, I think, in, in New York. And he's considered a man who has expertise on the Middle East because he's been there and so on and so forth. And this class of expert was sort of seized on by and has habitually been seized on by the media, by the corporations and so on, to inform their policy. Well, you know, you're quoting Nolte himself here. This is interesting because Nolte is one who is directly involved in this work. And he says, quoting him in the book of Edward Said, the forthcoming book uh, on covering Islam. Uh, from a university point of view, Nolte writes appropriately, rather interestingly, from a university point of view, the Middle Eastern centers can be seen as a promising new marketing mechanism for university output, helping them to produce a more marketable product, area-trained specialists of useful disciplines and professionals for potentially huge markets, but to create the markets. Mm. And in connection with these MA programs, the governmental, corporate banking, other professional markets for appropriately trained MAs with the Middle East dimension is comparatively brisk thanks to economic, political factors similar to all. Yes. So it's a commercial, it's Absolutely. sort of a marketing. Absolutely. has nothing to do with understanding a Not culture. at all. No, no, not at all. I mean, the reason people are interested now in going into Middle Eastern studies and getting M MAs, for example, is because there's a tremendous amount of business with the Middle East, you know, with the oil, through the oil companies, and because the United States has strategic uh, interests there. So what the universities produce are uh, experts who cater to this market. And one of the things that was extraordinary during the crisis with Iran, and indeed the continuing crisis with the whole Middle East, is the absence of any kind of countervailing force in the academy, you know, in the university, the expert who can sort of uh, refine the picture of what the Middle East is. In fact, all of the experts, in my opinion, have been co-opted either by the government or by the corporations or by the media. And they serve these interests. So you don't have, in fact, an independent, for the most part, you don't, there are some exceptions, obviously. So I'm thinking what this does to us, to the American people, because I think one of those rare moments it was, I think on 60 Minutes, when the uh, Iranian journalist poet, who's living yes. in America now. Yeah, but, uh, you, you, yeah you, you mean uh, Barahini, Reza Barahini. Barahini. Yeah. Was saying, I think for the sake of the American people, yes. he says, for your own knowledge yes. and awareness, yes. you should know this. I think. But coming back to the journalists, uh, one of the better journalists of our country, of the paper, the New York Times, Flora Lewis. Yes. And you compare her covering, and you might do this, it's kind of comical, with that of the Le Monde correspondent, right. Eric Rouleau. Yes. Well, what happened is that uh, at some point at the end of uh, 1979, when it was clear that Iran and Islam were important, 
The New York Times, and, and she says this herself in an, in an Esquire interview that she did uh, six months later, commissioned Flora Lewis, who is, uh, I gather, considered one of the more important foreign and experienced correspondents, to do a four-part series that appeared the last four days of 1979 uh, on the world of Islam. And what she did was she uh, went out and started to hunt up sources and information about something you know she knew nothing of beforehand. The result was a rather confusing series in which she made kind of huge generalizations about the troubles overtaking the world of Islam and so on and so forth. And the reader, after reading these four articles, was left with an impression of confusion and uh, fright. I mean that there is a very you know massively kind of uh, unfortunate uh, thing taking place within the world of Islam, a kind of crisis, a return to religion, all this kind of stuff. And the, the overall picture, as I say, was both confused and frightening. Now, you compare that with, and I compare it with, the work of the cor correspondent of the, for the Middle East, of Le Monde, uh, Eric Rouleau, whom you referred oh, to. The French paper. Uh, the the Le French paper Le Monde, which is a Parisian daily. And he uh, never resorts in describing, for example, the events in Iran to the things like the Islamic mind or the Islamic personality or the Islamic mentality, any of those large generalizations. What he's interested in reporting is process, the way people in society, any society, in this case Iranian society, act in a revolutionary situation. And what he tries to do for his reader is to inform the reader of the, you might say, the sense of life that is taking place in Iran. In detail, he goes out of his way to report the debates that are taking place in Iran to show that the picture is very fluid, that the issues are complicated, and that the reader, the French reader, he assumes, is interested in finding out that this is a situation in flux and that the outcome is not easily predicted. Whereas our feeling is that we ought to be able to put a stamp on the whole thing and say it's all anti-American, it's all potentially dangerous, and that's what our reporters have to, uh, you know, constantly deliver. And they, and they perform that way. Of course, also, the whole attitude we ship people in immediately oh. with a top for a few days, and, they, and then they, they, ship they, they find the expert. Yeah. Whereas Rouleau yes. of Le Monde and others of certain other European papers, but we're pointing, we're talking about now Western European yes. papers. Yeah. They've been there for years. For years. They and know they, the language, know right. the culture. Exactly. And they're considered uh, to cover it, that part of the world, as their professional. Uh, as part of their prof professional competence. Our people, I mean, take the New York Times or CBS and so on, they'll ship somebody out there for a crisis, somebody, let's say, who's coming from Spain or, uh, you know, the Bureau in London or Flora Lewis who's in, in Paris, and they ship them out there for when there's a crisis. They're supposed to, you know, use the fresh-eyed school of reporting. You know, you report what you see in front of you. They report it. When the crisis is over, they're shipped out. There's no history of, of uh, you know, understanding and living in a culture and, and understanding it to the extent that you could report it more or less accurately. Instead, what you get is uh, resorting, obviously, to generalizations and cliches. And since we talk about generalization and cliches, let's, you talked about, we just assume that Islam yes. is reactionary, fundamentalist, Absolutely. and a throwback. Why don't you yourself, as you, know, in, you did in Orientalism and in covering Islam, touch on the different aspects and perhaps some of the debates? Sure. I mean, for example, uh, the, the main text of, of Islam is, of course, the Quran, which is the holy uh, book. Now, the Quran is, uh, is to Muslims, uh, a book on which many interpretations are based, so that everyone who Not reads it... unlike... No, 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 exactly. No, precisely the same. I mean, it, it, it takes the same form that it does in any religion, that there is a sacred scripture, and then there are uh, schools of interpretations as to how you should interpret the scripture. For example, it can be shown that on the basis of reading the Quran, that Islam is opposed to capitalism, private enterprise, and private ownership of property, and it can also be shown that it is opposed to the communal uh, owning of property and to what we would call socialism. Uh, so there's a very wide divergence as to how you interpret the Quran for economic matters. Just as, say, in a Christian society, we have the fundamentalist as against the Unitarian. Absolutely. Uh, on other matters, the question of the role of women, uh, which we in the, in the West have resolved for Islam, we've said that they oppress women. There are various schools of interpretation that take the role of women to be different. Uh, from other schools of interpretation. The same applies, for example, to the very popular notion here of jihad, which is called holy war. Now, ho holy war is a corruption of an idea 
inside Islam, which really means great effort expended on behalf of a cause. It could be war, it could be, uh, it could be interpretation. For example, a mujtahid is a person who on his own interprets the text of the Quran, you see, and comes up with an interpretation of his own. So we tend to lump all of these th things together and to decide that Islam is really one simple creed and it governs everything, whereas, as I say, there are schools, there are sects, there are uh, uh, there are revolutionary traditions within Islam, you know, that are what we would call countercultural or, or counter-establishment. And these are all, I mean, the Iranian revolution is a perfect example of it because prior to that, the prevailing orthodoxy amongst Western scholars was that Muslims are fatalistic. I mean, that's the principal idea that we have of the Muslims, that they're fatalistic, and they usually acquiesce to tyranny and, and illegal authority. Well, have we forgotten? Uh, so the, uh, it seems to me the mentality uh, that created those films with Errol Flynn yes, and exactly. Cary Grant. Exactly. And here comes the flag, the crescent and star and crescent yes. Muslim. Millions dying. Yes, exactly. Just uh, loving to die. Yes, exactly. Because they'd be the hero. And so there's one Errol Flynn knocking them off, Absolutely. as indeed the American Indians Exactly. Were. Absolutely. And what people simply didn't understand because they weren't prepared to understand it in the case of Iran and the revolution was that Muslims could rise up on the basis of a just cause, in other words, that we want to overthrow a, ty a tyrannical regime and install a regime that is more representative of the mass of the people. Now, we don't happen, we may not happen to like that, but the fact is that Muslims, like any other people, are entitled to their idea of what justice is and to live in a, in a, in a society which is equitable and, is, and conforms to the traditions and the history and the geography of the region in which they live. None of that uh, sort of penetrated our consciousness. Just, yeah. as, just as, if I might add one thing, oh, that's very interesting about Iran, if you read all of the literature as I did, all of the literature about Iran prior to the revolution, there is literally nothing in it by any expert, whether in the academy, in the government, or anywhere else, that suggested that a revolution might take place in Iran. No one had the foresight. You see, in other words, what, what, is, what is writing on other cultures for? It is to help us understand, and also to help us understand, you might say, the movement, the currents, the, the, uh, the forces within other societies. We were completely unprepared for what took place in Iran. We were, we, were, we were under the impression into which millions of dollars were poured, and I'm not talking about aid to the country, I'm talking about the funding of studies, you know, Iranian studies in this country, that the status quo, the Shah, was there forever because he had, he had convinced us On that he was stable. On the eve of the revolution, exactly. the then-President Carter was saying, we have this stable ally. Yeah, he called it the island of stability. And, just, and at that very same time, there was, a, there was a revolution brewing. This is what the poet Baharani meant, I suppose, yes. but for our own sake. Exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, quite apart from what view of the world we happen to take, I mean, even from the point of view of a sort of a, per, a person in the State Department or in the White House, uh, it's important to know what is taking place in countries with whom we have very close alliances and on whom we've placed a great deal of, uh, of emphasis. The same thing, for example, in my opinion, is now happening to our policies uh, to towards countries like Pakistan or Egypt, where it's assumed that because the ruler, the, the big figure, is our friend, in this case Sadat or Zia al-Haq, uh, these people really ought to dictate to us their sense of what the society is, is. And as a result, the press simply doesn't report uh, other points of view that are taking, that are, that are organized, you, may, you might say opposition, to these countries, which in the case of Pakistan, for example, happens to be ruled by a, re by a remarkably repressive, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian. Zia. Uh, Zia al-Haq. Uh, as an instance, a, a month ago, the entire Supreme Court of, of Pakistan resigned in protest against the government. This was not reported in the United States press, you know. And this is a country that we're about to give a billion dollars worth of arms. Because he's our ally. He's our ally and he's anti-communist. And he, he talks that line mm -hmm. and we simply supply him and the media so goes on reporting, you know, how he's helping to, you know, the Afghanistani uh, insurgents fight against the Russian occupation. Now come back to this matter of the uh, stereotype, the yes. image that we, we have. And yes. immediately, of course, it's, it's, it's the image, the figure. And of course, you think of, uh, of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah. Yes. He is all Islam. He, he's all Islam, and he's considered to be bad because he is anti-American. That is to say, we see it, and we talk about the loss of Iran. I mean, there's some idea, too, oh. that, we own, you know, that we own these countries, you know. And there's now great fear of the loss of Saudi Arabia, you see. Well, and there was so, the loss of China. And the loss of China, and the loss of Vietnam, and the loss of Cuba, and all the rest of it. And we have a strange idea that at the same time that we don't really, we're not in those parts of the world, and in some way we're entitled to them. 
And what is now very prevalent, of course, is that people are talking regularly now with talk of the rapid deployment forces and so on about returning to the Gulf region and, you know, invading it should something happen there that is against our interests. You know, there are so many questions come up covering Islam, uh, the book of my guest, Edward Said. We'll pause now because you also point out the cause celeb, the PBS program that World put on, Death of a Princess, right. as an indication of the repressive, almost medieval attitude toward women. Yes. And by the matter of progress and, uh, and, uh, and reaction, Talk about that in Islam, and perhaps even in the debate, even the figure of Bani Sadr is an yes. interesting one indeed, yes. who is hardly mentioned, he's mentioned on occasion. Yes. And perhaps this whole aspect of the variety Absolutely. of impulses Absolutely. in the Islamic world. Okay. In a moment, we'll resume after this message. So we're resuming the conversation with Edward Said, and it's a forthcoming book published by Pantheon called Covering Islam. The subtitle, how the media and experts you know, determine how we see, not simply Islam, because that's such a classic case, yes. the rest of the world. Yes, and, and it works in other instances, yes. too. But you mentioned the, the movie, The Death of a Princess. Uh, one of the things that, that was, that was uh, uh, clear about this movie and why it had uh, tremendous success, there were two reasons. One is that it presented a portrait of uh, Saudi Arabia. Of, a, of an Islamic society in which women were punished for their, uh, you know, infractions or their uh, uh, defiance of, of the code. Uh, and this movie was uh, obviously opposed by the Saudi Arabian government, in other words, who tried to stop it. Now, I think you had a classic case there of the situation that obtains between the West and Islam today. On the one hand, you had a movie that as a movie, it wasn't particularly, you know, it wasn't a particularly brilliant movie. It was a, it was, a, it had a kind of human interest angle to it. Uh, but the movie was shown at a time when uh, the country was perfectly prepared to see an instance, a dramatized instance of an Islamic society, in a sense, fulfilling the role prepared for it by our mythology of Islam. In other words, a woman who is beheaded and her lover who's beheaded because they defy the medieval codes of. Uh, a repressive society. There was very little attention given to the fact that this was a particular case of a royal family and, uh, uh, and that there was opposition to, to, to within the country. Uh, what we settled for was the image of Islamic punishment and Islamic cruelty. And the, the role of the movie was to enforce that particular image. Now, the Saudis, in reacting to that, uh, instead of, I think they made a, a great mistake, instead of trying to show that Islam is much more complicated than that, that there, were, that there was more to Islamic society than, you know, women uh, being beheaded for adultery, uh, tried to stop the movie. Uh, and they reacted in exactly the wrong way. In other words, they made it possible for 50 million people to see the movie. And the whole cycle repeated itself, you okay. see, so that the, the image of Islam was confirmed in everybody's mind. There was the, the repressive society, and then there were these authoritarian rulers who were trying to censor our view of the, of, of the image. And, and, and it dramatized the fact, furthermore, that there was nothing for us to fall back on. There was no alternative picture. Um, and there was no sense that Islamic societies were of other sorts than that one in Saudi Arabia. They were all robed figures, and they were all cruel, and they were plus, all... Plus the piquant touch of large American multinationals, number of them, on the side of Saudi Arabia yes, trying yes. to stop it. <laughs> yes, now right. we come to the aspect of oil. Yes, of course. Know. Yeah, I mean, that this was, this was a way that the oil companies had of sort of proving their loyalty to their, to their supplier, namely Saudi Arabia. And the oil companies, uh, you know, wrote public letters, you know, to, the, to Warren Christopher, who was the uh, Assistant Secretary of State during the Carter administration, and suggested that he intervene and get PBS to stop it. And, and the whole thing was built up into, a, into a, an extremely limiting thing in which nobody learned anything. But that's, what, that's what adds to the uh, critical aspect of our ignorance about, it's a, you say the, the history of Islam, of Islamic people, of Iran specifically, among others, is wholly ignorable. Yes. But it, to add to it is the fact that oil is involved here. Yes, exactly. To accentuate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, you see, oil, in a sense, further limits yeah. uh, what we know about it. In other words, the, the Islamic world has now become synonymous with the supply of oil. Now, if you ask, uh, an interesting experiment, if you ask somebody uh, to name a well-known Islamic writer, for example, or artist, or 
figure in other than you know people like Khomeini and so on. They know nothing about it. It's he, curious. He, that I, there are no books. I talking to you right now, so I couldn't think of the name of Baharani. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and he is but one. Yes, he exactly. happens to be here in America. Yes, yeah. but of course, I'm sure there's scores. Yeah, of no, of course, and you know, writers it's a, and artists. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, one of the other great figures of the Iranian Revolution was a writer, a man called Ali Shariati, whose whose name is not known to the average uh, watcher of the news or reader of the New York Times and other major newspapers, and he was as important as the Ayatollah Khomeini in mobilizing the masses. And he was a, a radical sociologist who used is, the Islamic, you might say, the Islamic, uh, uh, the Islamic idiom to mobilize the masses and get them out to, you know, to bring down this tyrannical regime. Yeah, I think, well, of course, one of the, now and then there is this journalist that was, comes along the scene who's uh, cast a shaft of light. I have stone, of yes. course, a case in point. Yes, absolutely. And throughout, he touches on this. Yeah, no, what's interesting about, about people like Stone, and one of the arguments that I make about the book, is that you don't have to be an expert. You see, that's the point. My, my feeling is that expertise, where you are certified by a university or a corporation, is knowing something about a region of the world. In the case of the Islamic world, has produced people who really know very little about it. They rely on cliches that are taught them and passed on from generation to generation. Whereas you take somebody like I.F. Stone, who makes no pretense to be an academic expert. And I found that he, 10 months before the hostage crisis began, in January, late January of 1979, wrote an article when the Shah was driven out of Tehran by the revolution, in which he said, it's now clear that the Shah has important friends in this country, like Kissinger and Rockefeller, and it's also clear that we're going to bring him to this country. At that time, the Iranians are likely to respond, and they may even take hostages and make claims on us. Are we prepared for this? And here's a man who knew nothing, I mean, he's no expert on Iranian history, but he understands that people who feel oppressed and feel that they're being aggressed upon are likely to respond. And that's one thing we never calculate on. We think that people can be bombed into submission or told that that's the way it is and they have to accept it or you know, they, don't, they don't get to base one with us. But uh, that was interesting. It was a non-expert who wrote the most penetrating and predictive kind of article about what would take place in Iran, whereas all the experts were comfortably saying, you know, that... You know, I think this matter of experts, since uh, you quote Nolte, himself an expert, yes. as, you know, uh, tipping the mitt, yes. you know, blowing the cover, really, yes. Yes. about experts just used for certain purposes. They're yes. not really ex I think this applies to almost every aspect of our life. Today. I think so. I think, you know, it really has to do, uh, and I, I try to discuss it specifically, uh, in as specific terms as possible, to show how prevalent it is. It really has to do with a kind of network of supply and demand. You know, if it's felt that you need experts, uh, and I'm talking now particularly about people in the university, you provide funds for it. For example, if you could show, as, as was the case after Sputnik, that the Russians are a great threat, and therefore we have to do X and Y and Z in the national interest, then you create a whole apparatus for creating experts, you see, whose whole work is geared in the end not to human understanding and to furthering, you might say, human community, but rather to furthering the aims of this network. To it's this kind of self-perpetuating old boy thing, you know, where people pick each other, they get funds, they, they have seminars on this. I give examples of seminars that are held now on such things as, uh, as Islam and slavery. Uh, and these simply reinforce the ideas and other subjects that could be explored. For example, very few people talk about literature. I mean, there's a tremendous literature. I mean, you know, novels, poems, dramas produced in the Islamic world. We know nothing about that. And in the end, obviously, people in the Islamic world respond to that much more than they respond to big general ideas about, you know, Islam yeah. and so on. I think even the uh, better shows, so-called PBS, has uh, McNeil and Lair. Yes. You know, and the experts they've had on. And you point out what happens <laughs> when they're on the pro of someone who actually does try to have a speak from a different point of view say well we have this idea of balance you see the McNeil Lara report yeah. always has people from different points of view so I remember once they asked me to be on the show and to uphold the view uh, to oppose the view that Khomeini was a lunatic. They said, we have somebody, pre we're prepared to bring somebody on the show who will argue that Khomeini's a lunatic. Would you appear on the show and say that he's not one? I said, I, but that's an absurd discussion right now. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the man's a lunatic or not, because he, he's the leader of the country. And what you do is you find yourself in a box, you're given a three-minute spot, you speak your piece, you, you define your position, and immediately after that, somebody else comes on and sort of cancels you out with his position, so that the public is given a false impression of balancing points of view, but the overall impression 
impression is created. It simply reinforces the original one that it's a strange world and we really mm. don't understand it. And too also, uh, stick with Khomeini for a month and it's a familiar name when you can hang on to it. Yeah. As though he indeed represented all of Islam. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Khomeini was within Iran himself. I mean, there are many forces opposed to Khomeini, even now. Uh, there, just as within the Islamic world, as an instance, Sadat was calling him a lunatic. Uh, and there, the Iraqis and the Iranians now are fighting, and both of them feel that they're fighting on good Islamic principles against each other. So that Khomeini, but far from being a representative of Islam, is an instance, uh, a particularly powerful instance, admittedly, but is an instance of a view of Islam which prevailed in Iran, but is by no means uncontested. You, know, you, you point out that there's a pretty exciting debates on very fundamental issues taking yes. place. Yeah, we, we have never, never seen, seen that. No, and it's, it's interesting that it's very rarely attended to, even, though in the, even in the universities, in the Arab world, for instance, about which I know something. Uh, there is a very important debate taking place, which has been going on for 20 years. It's the debate about what is called turath, or tradition. I mean, because the Islamic, you know, with the, you can consider the same debate taking place in our society. What are the ideals? What are the traditions that ought to be preserved? And what do they mean in Western society? Well, the same debate takes place within a traditional culture like Islam. And the question of how do you interpret uh, the past? Uh, should the Islamic world be, for example, or the Arab world, should it be a large uh, federation or should it be a collection of individual states? What, is the, what are the means to accomplish one or the other end? How should they coexist? What is the meaning of community? What is the meaning of, uh, of religion? What is the meaning of ethics? How do you deal, for example, with the problem of money? which is a new factor in, the, in parts of the Islamic world. All of these are lively debates that are taking place. Many different points of view represented. We don't see any of it at all. And when someone, when an American figure, does now and then speak, I say, isn't there an alternative to what we're doing? As, as Ted Kennedy did for a moment, he's called the Toast of oh, yeah. Tehran. Tehran, exactly. Or Ramsey Clark. Ramsey of course, Clark, yes, exactly. He's imme you're immediately attacked for being an uh, anti-American. Or a uh, conservative congressman named Hanson. Hanson. I remember he was absolutely ridiculed. He was ridiculed, uh, although yeah. when you read the account of what happened to Hanson in Tehran, in Le Monde, you get a much different point of view. Here, he was thought of as a kind of a blundering idiot who was trying to make a name for himself, and he was vaguely corrupt and so on and so forth. Whereas, according to Rouleau, he was able to make contact with the people inside the embassy, uh, you know, in, in Tehran, and that he was making headway on actually getting the hostages released back in no late November of 1979. Over here, he was thought of as a complete fool because he didn't seem to stick to the, to the agreed upon consensus, the policy of the United States towards the Iranians, which was no negotiations, give us back our hostages and we, or we won't talk to you. It seemed as though every aspect of, uh, particularly of the Islamic world, is covered yes. in one way only. Absolutely. I mean, one way only. Yeah. And, uh, or third, reflecting as a third world, one of the most respected and celebrated of writers day in the world, in the Western world, is V.S. Naipaul. Right. And you point out, and you did the devastatingly in a piece in the New York Review of Books, and here, Naipaul, was in who, the nation. In the nation, nation, who yeah. is a brilliant, he is a brilliant craftsman, there is yeah, no doubt no about it. There's no question about it, yeah. yes. But he is incredibly popular yes. as a profound student. He's continually rapping. That's right, absolutely. No, I, I, I'm interested in Naipaul because Naipaul is now used, I mean, quite apart from his great gifts, he is a great you know, craftsman, but he is used as a representative of the third world and as a person who's always knocking the third world and saying it's a horrible place and they failed and so on and so forth. And, you know, there are many other, for example, African and Indian writers who write in English who are simply not read. Naipaul is read because he confirms our suspicion that the third world right now is an awful place and it's a place in which uh, the, the end of colonialism has meant corruption and cruelty and despotism and so on and so forth. And in a strange way, no doubt, despite himself, Naipaul is used as a kind of, as a kind of cover, as a kind of excuse for people now beginning to think that imperialism is really not such a bad thing after all. After all, people say, and it's now you see this everywhere. Um, or colonialism. Or colonialism in, in particular, that why shouldn't we, because we are a superior race, why shouldn't we rule uh, black Africa? Why shouldn't we rule uh, the Middle East? I mean, these people are making uh, our lives miserable. They are disorderly, etc., etc. They are cruel. They are irrational and so on. What would be wrong if the United States or Britain or France simply went in and reoccupied the region? Of course, what is astonishing, I shouldn't say not astonishing, is 
in the celebration of Naipaul, again, this gifted craftsman, hey, it wasn't too bad in the early days. Yes, absolutely. Because, of course, it's easy to point out in Idi Amin yes. and the Odyssey. Right. But what is happening underneath yes. that was hardly pointed out. Not, not, not only that, but what, what he doesn't also point out and what people just forget is that the long period, you know, of two or three hundred years of colonial rule sort of distorted the lives of the, of the native peoples of these regions of Africa and Asia that Naipaul writes about. So that it's very unlikely that they're going to produce the, they're not going to produce French civilization. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to produce Londons and Parises, you see. Uh, but the impression that you get is, well, it's a pity that we left those places. It was a mistake to give up. We should have stayed and maybe we should go back. My friend James Cameron, the British journalist yes. who was with Krishna Menon, was a member of the many years of Free India yes. Committee and who was a friend of Nehru. And he says, oh, now all the blimps are pointing out because of the difficulties going on yes. and repression indeed in some yes. of the countries. By God, we were right after all. Yes, yes. And Nepal, in a much more sophisticated way, a much more literate way, yes. Is he's confirming the stereotype, you see, that's the point. I mean, he's, as uh, he was reviewed, there was a big front page review of his book in the New York Times, I recall, in which it was said, well, this is a man who really tells us about the third world. He's from the third world and the Islamic world. And, and if anybody knows about it, he does. And he's really confirming our worst suspicions. Therefore, he's a great writer. That was the, the, the way the so argument goes. So where we come back to the question, how do we of the Western world, or this, specifically the United States, yes. and, interpret another culture? And this is what it's about. Yeah, well, I, you see, I think, uh, I think the main thing is common sense, you know, basically. It's not expertise. It's not learning a kind of canned uh, program about, you know, the kind of thing you get in an army handbook of a region. Uh, vital statistics are important. I mean, you need to know the capital of a country. You need to know who, what parties and power, that sort of thing. Anybody can get. But what I think is more important than that is what I call common sense, where you interpret another culture in its own terms, of course. You have to know the language. There's no short, you know, there's no shortcut around that. And what is interesting, I found, is so many of the experts who claim to be experts can't even read the texts. You know, they have to rely on the news media. So you need to know the language. And above all, you have to understand that people in, in other cultures and other societies uh, react the same way we do. I mean, they feel grief and they feel hope and they feel love and they feel anger and so on and so forth in much the same way we do. So that if you, you, you conduct your study uh, of another culture on those premises, which it's never been done, you see. Now, what haunts me, I, I return to that uh, New York Times, page 17. Exactly. Or yes. 27 yeah, right. story. Put in the back. It's unimportant. But that one story I'd never read, that I'm thinking of high Christ correspondents who were there for 400 some days in Tehran, yes. all three networks, uh, top papers, yes. and no coverage yes. of Iran a simple thing I call Iranian grief. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But and suppose an American mother, who's not an expert, pardon me, yeah. had seen the Iranian mother cry for her yes. son who was killed. We know, we know Amnesty International, yes. uh, which is the international organization, yes. prestigious, speaks yes. to the scores of thousands yes, absolutely. killed under the shell. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there was no, there was, and the other thing you see that, 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 that made this, the story on page 27 particularly sad in this instance was that the news, and particularly the television news, which are pictures after all, their main claim to the attention of their audience, their consumer, is that they are objective, you see. And there's no attempt made to suggest to the audience that what we are getting when we see the evening news is not that's the way it is, it's that's what we choose to give you. In other words, it's, it's, an act, it's almost an act of deliberate will <coughs> to block out certain aspects of reality and, ref and, 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 and focus on, on those aspects which yeah. confirm our, our worst you, fears. You know, just that, and on that, not on, you, you point out C. Wright Mills, yes. so uh, knowledgeable and so understanding yes. as, a, as a sociologist, as I have stoners, as a journalist. Yes. We're speaking of the second-hand approach. Yes. Indeed, we have a second-hand filtered approach. Absolutely. We rely. I mean, what we know about other parts of the world, like the world of Islam, is really we don't get it directly. I mean, we get it through pictures that are pictures taken from somewhere else. And and, but at the same time, we get this tremendous impression of immediacy. It's right up against our, in our living rooms. We see these Islamic hordes screaming down with Carter, down with America. And we don't realize that what we're getting is not a picture of something yeah. in reality, yeah. but we're getting a picture of a picture of a picture of a picture, the second-hand, third-hand interpretation. And you that's know, the way our world is made. You know, just leafing through the galleys of your book, Edward Said, I, he, and here's a quote. The subtle, elusive nature of the Persian language. Yes. 
Right, I mean, that, that uh, was subtle and elusive, elusive nature. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So I start thinking of the inscrutable Oriental. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You you find these wonderful cliches about the Persian language by people who know nothing about it except yeah. that it's well, any language that you don't know is bound to be subtle and elusive, and every language is subtle and elusive. This is no basis in sort of linguistic uh, knowledge or anything at all. It's just an idea that these are crafty and devious people. We can't understand them, and we have to assume, therefore, that they are. Uh, our enemies, because they don't think the way we do. And we are the people who define the norm. You know, it's funny, uh, Joseph Kraft, <laughs> and somehow he could not accept the fact that there was an Iranian revolution. Yeah, right. So he, his, his view was that the Iranian revolution was a disaster for America, and therefore what we had to do in response to it was he, what he called a decisive show of force. He didn't specify what he meant. It might have meant, you know, bombing Tehran or sending the Marines in or something. But the idea was, and this is, the, in a sense, one of the more important sort of uh, things I try to get across in the book, is that, that American power is the issue, you see. And my argument is that we can't control the rest of the world. We can't even give ourselves the impression that we have control over the rest of the world. That the rest of the world is going to is getting more independent. That people want to leave their lives the way they, you know, they, the way they see it. And that the whole Iranian and Islamic revolution, as it's been called in this country, was seen not as an instance of a people asserting its integrity and, and you know, the kinds of ideals that we believe in for ourselves, but it was seen as a tremendous insult to the United States, as if the world was really our world to be dealt with the way we saw fit. And you had many of the uh, columnists and pundits pushing that line, that it's an, it's an affront to American power. If, if, that, if that's the basis on which we try to understand the rest of the world and live in that world, I'm afraid we're, we're heading towards war. So where, where, where then does it leave us now? As we near the end of the hour, we're touching on... <laughs> I have the word that comes to my mind, if I were to define or to describe uh, the, re the reportage, the journalism, the experts on on Islam, I would say the word is mindless. Yes. Mindless. I, I think it is. It's uncritical, yeah. and it... And, and above all, it follows a kind of unconscious ideology that everything that we do is right, uh, that everything that we want we ought to have, and that all people who don't conform to the patterns that we've set out for them are somehow uh, evil and ought to be struck down. But I think something else here. I think it's an insult to the intelligence of the American public. I think there is a native intelligence Oh, absolutely, here. absolutely. But that is day after day yeah. after day. There's it's a, numbing. It's yeah. numbing. And I found that during the, during the last year when I would speak in various places or appear here and there or write articles and so on, I found tremendous responsiveness to people who said, you know, what we get in the media is so repetitious and is so informs us so little that anything that we can find out more is better than that even if it's stuff that you know that that is that is disconcerting but i i think you're absolutely right and i think one of the, the things that makes made me write this book was the, the sense exactly that there exists in this society a possibility for change in our understanding of the rest of the world uh that our society is not be, being given a chance to uh to uh, to exploit and i think it's therefore very important to, to, to argue that change in our perception of the rest of the world is possible if we can get past these blinders, this mindless sort of set that is put on us by the media and by the experts. Talking to Edward Said, whose most recent book, uh, Covering Islam, is the base of our discussion. He's a professor of English literature, comparatively at Columbia University. And perhaps just a, an epilogue, a, a postscript, thoughts of now and what? Now and what? Uh, you know, the interesting thing is our world is getting smaller. Uh, we know a great deal more about each other, uh, you know, almost unintentionally. And I think that is something that ought to be viewed positively and not, as many people do, uh, something to be afraid of. In other words, I think, I think that we can gain more by opening ourselves to the rest of the world, by thinking of the rest of the world not in terms of power, but in terms of human community. And I think that's the only way. Otherwise, we're going to build a series of armed camps and we're, we're going towards a, a tremendous conflagration that, that does us no, no, no good at all. Edward Said, thank you very much. Thank you.